We'll hear argument next in case 065306, Bowles versus Russell. Mr. Mancino. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Petitioner is before this Court because he followed an order of the District Court. He filed his notice of appeal within the time authorized by the District Court. It was only when the matter came before the Court of Appeals was raised that the District Court apparently had no authority to grant a 17-day extension, although it specified a specific date, rather than the 14 days in connection with the uh, case. Yes, it was authorized by the District Court in the sense that the District Court put it on a piece of paper. It wasn't authorized because the District Court had no authority to extend that. Well, the the District Court put it on there, and when you look at the actual entry itself, it's a handwritten entry. There's no way of telling from the handwritten entry whether that entry was even entered on the docket on the same day, because all you have is the handwritten entry, February 10th, file your appeal by February 27th, which is unusual in a civil case, because normally in a civil case you get a judgment. You don't get a directive from the court that you have 30 days to file a notice of appeal or anything in connection with this. So I don't think it's unreasonable to rely upon a directive from a court. But you knew that 14 days was the maximum because the motion asking for it cited and quoted from the rule. Well, that, that we did cite from the rule. That is correct. But when the order came out, well, first of all, it was we we're glad to get the order to allow time to appeal. But looking at the order, we're just looking at the date something had to be done. And, of course, we filed it one day before what the if, end What date. if the district court had given you an extra month? Would the, your argument still be the same, that that, because the court said it, uh, that uh, trumps the limitation in the rule? Well, then you get into certain time limits, whether it's reasonable under the circumstances, would a reasonable attorney or litigant rely upon a, you know, expansive period of time that the court gave to it. But here, certainly this order is not unreasonable. It's certainly within the confines, and you have a specific end date. Do your notice of appeal by this date. But wouldn't a reasonable lawyer have said, gee, I referred to the rule when I made this motion for extension of time. The rule said 14 days. This judge obviously made a slip. He miscalculated. Wouldn't a lawyer, faced with what the rule clearly says, and an inconsistency scribbled on an order, say, the judge probably uh, made a mistake, so I better, if I want to protect my client, do what the rule says? Well, looking back, that is probably correct, but looking at the order and the way it came out and the fact that, uh, you know, the, uh, the rule allowed for a reopening of the appeal, uh, just looking at the, uh, the end date of the order, make sure the notice of appeal is filed by that date. It would seem to me that the party who is adversely affected by it may object to the, on that basis, saying, Judge, you have no authority to do this. What are you doing in connection why, with Why isn't uh, — this is just a notice of appeal. Why would uh, you, you — why not file it the same day? Um, in terms of looking at it from some equitable sense, I don't understand why you'd wait toward the end of a period, uh, assuming it hadn't focused on the difference between the 14 days and the days allowed. What why, — why would you delay filing the notice of appeal? Well, the only reason for delaying is obviously is workload, and you don't want to get all briefs due within a short period of time once you get your notice of appeal filed in a particular case, because you have time limits for getting your record, your briefing, and, you know, there were a number of appeals going, not in this court, but, in a, you know, there were a number of appeals going on. And my normal practice is, you know, file your notice of appeal near the end of the applicable appeal time. So does, it, it make, does it make a difference that we're dealing with the safety valve provision? In other words, you've got the 30 days to file, and then this rule allows you to uh, — it's a safety valve. If you didn't get the notice or whatever, you've got a certain procedure that can give you the extra 14 days. And now 
it seems to me that you're asking for a safety valve on top of the safety valve, and I wonder if there's some point where you cut off the uh, allowing it out for, for missing the deadline. Well, I suppose at some point someone may say, well, if the court gave you 180 days to do the act, someone may say, well, that appears to be unreasonable in connection. Okay, I think the safer thing is just to put the order down, say application, to reopen the appeal time, granted, and then it would cause someone to go, you know, go back, look at the rule, see how much time is allotted under the rule in connection with the case. But I don't think it's unreasonable in these circumstances. We're only talking about three days to uh, do an act. The act was done in two days. Well, but as soon as you start talking about an exception from the provision in the rules, then you're going to get a lot of applications. There are going to be a lot of different reasons for why it wasn't filed on the last day. Um, uh, once that's, it seems to me, you open it up for an indeterminate uh, ruling. Well, this is an equitable rule in itself because it allows something where a, an appeal time has expired. Can you come in and show the circumstances, one, you were not notified, which obviously the court did, and is the other side prejudiced? Well, it's an equitable rule conditioned upon compliance with time limits. <laughs> well, that's, that's once it's granted. It's not it's, uh, the time limit is 180 days or the seven day after you received or became aware actually. No, but just notice. as Kennedy's point, I think, is critical. In other words, the drafters of the rule obviously wanted to provide a safety valve, but they also appreciated that you can't have it open ended. So they did impose uh, limits on the, uh, uh, if you want to call it an equitable exception to the, the 30 day rule. And it seems to me that you're, you're sort of Restrike the balance the drafters of the rule struck if you allow further equitable departures from their, their rule. Well, I think in past cases, the court has always recognized there are deadlines, but there are exceptions to deadlines. And this, the most compelling exception is where a court says, do the act at this particular time. I mean, you know, it's coming from a judicial officer. It's not coming from someone miscalculating on the calendar. Uh, calculating the time out, when it's 30 days run, when it's 14 days run, when it's 10 days run in connection with the case, because in civil litigation, you are not given any specific time to do an act. Criminal uh, cases are a little bit different. You are told about an appeal, when an appeal has to be filed in connection with a case. You do not have it in civil. In order to get your final order, you know you have 30 days to do it. Mr. Mancino, your, your position here is that uh, uh, that this rule is is not jurisdictional. Now, what 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 are the consequences of that? Uh, I take it that that would mean that the uh, Court of Appeals has no obligation to inquire on its own whether the matter has been filed too late. Well, I believe that if, if the parties don't make anything of it, the Court of Appeals can. Uh, can take a late, uh, a late filing? Well, I think when the Court of Appeals does that, I think in all fairness they should advise the parties in advance that we're considering this on our own, uh, that the appeal was out of time and would you like to? No, no, but I'm, I'm asking whether a Court of Appeals has to even worry about that. If the parties don't make anything of it, the Court of Appeals can just assume it's okay and go ahead, right? Correct, because I think you, you waived any, the other side obviously has waived or forfeited any right to object to the, you know, to the uh, And you need an objection or else it's, it'll be okay. I'm sorry? And you needed objection or else it will be all right. Yes, the objection in this case it came, you know, in the. That what? means that a rule that says 14 days is really a rule left to the discretion of the district judge. Because if the district judge feels like giving a little more, this would be no control unless the opposing side objects. Is that right? Well, I, I, I believe it does call for a timely objection by somebody. Say something rather than just sit back and uh, let it expire, knowing that s someone uh, did something that they should not do in connection Suppose with Suppose you have problems at home, I don't know yet, an illness at home, and, and, and you ask counsel for the other side, you know, uh, I know there's, it's a 14-day limit, but c would you give me 20, 20 days, right? And opposing counsel being as friendly as they are nowadays, uh, the, the, other, the other side would say, sure, take 20 days, okay? 
And so you prepare a paper for signature by the judge, and he signs off on it, gives you 20 days. That's okay then, right? Well, I because think — Because the other side's agreed. He won't object on the Court of Appeals. And suddenly, suddenly you've got 20 days, even though the rule says 14. Well, there you have somewhat advanced knowledge that you're doing something possibly contrary to a rule. But then you have the issue — once you do it, are you forfeiting your right to object or claim a deficiency in the process? Here you only the, what you're well, doing. I mean, that, 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 may, that may, may be true as of this stage, but uh, Justice Scalia's uh, question points up the problem. What do we do if we write this case? How do we formulate this rule? And if we say that it is not jurisdictional, it's not binding, uh, then going forward, it seems to me to allow the hypothetical that he puts to you. Well, I believe you can come up with all sorts of scenarios. What I think is thing. Well, that's why we're wondering how to write the opinion. <laughs> Where did a litigant reasonably rely upon an order of the court, which apparently the court had authority to issue, regardless of the court making a mistake or doing something intentionally? The to person who did the reliance was you, I guess. Yes. That's correct. And is it correct that who was was this a, a litigant represented by counsel during the period when he didn't get the notice of the September 9th order? Yes, I filed the habeas petition. I did anything in uh, in connection with the case. So, so neither the neither the prisoner nor you received any notice of the first uh, goof up. Well, the the first well, we received notice of the judgment on the merits. Then we filed a motion to alter judgment or, or for a new trial. It was not the order overruling the motion to alter or amend judgment or the motion for a new trial that has been not received. And the clerk's docket shows it wasn't mailed out. But, I see. But in, the, in that court, they were transitioning to this electronic filing, which not everybody was set up at that particular time. So apparently the order may have only gone to on the electronic filing system to those who were set up, and we were not set up at that thing. But the clerk still had the obligation to send it out. The court found that the clerk did not send it out. The clerk found that, uh, or the court found that we did not have notification, and the court found that the other side is not prejudiced by uh, any would application. Your, would your uh, proposed exception, does it work the other way? I mean, let's say the district court entered this order and set a date certain for you to file the notice of appeal, only gave you seven days on his count rather than 14, and you filed it on the ninth day, in other words, within the 14 days given under the rule. Would you be uh, out of luck because the, what the district court set out in its order is what's binding as opposed to what the rule says, or could you rely on the fact that the rule says you get 14 days? Well, I would believe you could uh, then in that argue that the rule says that the judge was wrong in, you know, in truncating your appeal time to file the appeal. Why wouldn't the same approach work the other way? The rule says 14 and the judge was wrong to give you more. Well, because the exceptions to all of these time deadlines, you have cases from this court where people <laughs> untimely file a motion for a new trial. A new trial motion, by rule, has to be timely filed in order to toll your time. And there have been cases where the motion for new trial has been untimely filed. The other side didn't say anything. And then when the ruling is made, the appeal is filed within the appropriate time. And uh, this Court has sanctioned uh, uh, that procedure in connection. I, I see it no difference here where a litigant before a court court issues an order, you look at the order, and you abide by the order in connection with the case. They do have a, a reasonable reliance in the case, and you're looking uh, back later on in connection with uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the issue in connection with the case. Well, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes uh, district courts take jurisdiction over a case that they, that they shouldn't have jurisdiction over. Well, and sometimes in reliance on that, you go through a whole trial, and it comes up to the Court of Appeals, and we say, there was no jurisdiction here. Too bad. Well, Even though the Court said it, and you, you went through a whole trial in reliance on the district judge, district judges make mistakes. Well, that's a whole, I believe that's a whole different scenario than presented here. That's goes to what it's the even court worse, subject it seems matter. to me. I mean, you've wasted 
God, you know, weeks in trial and so forth. Well, but if it's jurisdictional, we have to say, you know, too bad. Well, the, yes, you were misled by the judge. And in reliance on the district judge, you expended a lot of time and money. But there was no jurisdiction, and that's the end of the matter. Well, the rule I always remember from law school is the parties cannot voluntarily confer jurisdiction on a court that does not have it in a court at any point, if they do not have subject matter jurisdiction, is free to dismiss the case, whether it's a trial level, the appeal level, or whatever. But this is not that situation. Obviously, the court, by the rule, could look into this matter. The court, by the rule, could grant relief in connection with this matter. It's a question whether the Three days. Uh, I know I could find this up by looking at a calendar. Do you remember what day of the week February 24th was or 26th? I believe. Don't I, I, believe it was, no, I don't believe it was a weekend, though. I, well, I, I looked at the, at the uh, there's a time stamp, and I, I think it might be the time stamp when this document was entered on the ultimate appeal. But something you said at the outset uh, prompts this question. Uh, did you think that the, the time runs from 14 days after the date when the, when the district court's order is entered? And when it's entered, that's correct. And uh, was there a submission or uh, an implication in your remarks uh, that you thought that the order was not entered um, until uh, three days later? Is, no. there's, is, there, is there an entry, is there a time entry on the dock on the, on the court's order? No, it's a handwritten one. It doesn't I know say that entry. there's a handwritten, handwritten one, that's but, it. but that, that shows how long he has to appeal. Is, is there a date when the order was put on the dock? Does that show on, on this sheet? No, there's nothing from the clerk indicating. On the docket there is, but nothing on the document that was sent, because the document right. only was sent was just handwritten over the uh, on top of the uh, motion so there was no way of telling when it was entered because you look back at the history of this case when the court dismissed the original petition the court had a date on it it was only 18 days later that it was actually entered by the clerk and of course that triggered the time for asking for reconsideration so but uh, it what about the weekends I mean uh Maybe the judge uh, I, looks from my calendar. I wondered what day of the week it was. You don't remember two ten February ten two thousand four. What day of the week is it? That I, I cannot answer. It looks like it was the middle of the week. So maybe there were one or two weekends. So maybe what the judge's mistake was he didn't know how to count the weekend rule. Well, what I think it was done because which may not be jurisdictional. The weekend rule. What I believe is that this was sent out by mail, so they had. You know, the three-day mail rule, and that's how he came to the uh, 14 days in connection with the, uh, in, in uh, putting the 17-day the limit maybe, on. Maybe Arabic numerals aren't jurisdictional either. Uh. <laughs> no, they're not. A numeral is not jurisdictional. What is, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what's the three-day mail rule? Well, normally if you're allowed to do an act by mail, you have three days or you can serve a party, then you have three days to file it with the uh, court as part of the civil rules. And I sort of think that's what the judge, because this was going out by mail, probably didn't get, I, I wish I would have saved the envelope, but I don't have the envelope, but uh, probably didn't get to my office for three days anyway, so. Well, yeah. thinking the three-day mail rule, maybe the judge's intent when he signed this was that it actually was entered, took effect as of three days later. Well, there's really no — looking at the document, there's no way of telling that. that. That is correct. There's no way of telling that. And I believe that was probably the reasoning of the court that, you know, it would take three days to get mail because you didn't get the — it wasn't sent out last time. Obviously, you did not get the mail the last time. So they added the three days, and you have the full 14 days to, you know, perfect or file your notice of appeal to get it to the uh, uh, court in, uh, in this case. So. Well, all of that might have, all of those things might have been going in, on in the judge's mind, but you don't contest that the 14-day period was not complied with. 
you don't have an argument that you complied with the 14-day no, period. No, I do not. We're relying to the exceptions, and there's a number of exceptions on deadlines that have come out. You have the equitable tolling, you have the waiver forfeiture issue, and, uh, you know, this case, specific assurance by a court, which in a past opinion it seemed to uh, control the date where a judge gave it a specific assurance that you could do something in connection with the case. The old uh, Harris truck cases where the lawyer was on vacation. And the judge said, well, I'll give you some extra time, even though they knew of the judgment. They knew the time would run. I said, I'll give you extra time to file the appeal because you want to contact the lawyer who was on vacation. The Court of Appeals then said, well, the rule didn't apply because you knew of the order. So, but uh, that was uh, overlooked, even though by time calculation, everybody was out of time. The Eberhardt case, they were out of time because the motion for a new trial was filed untimely, which uh, under the rule required a timely filing of a motion for a new trial in order to toll your appeal time. So uh, this, obviously, uh, the motion to reopen was timely filed. It was filed within the, the 180 days required by the rule. The other side was served. The other side had no objection. Uh, to it and didn't, didn't oppose it. And the real issue when you're looking at an equitable, sort of an equitable rule like this, is the other side prejudiced? And obviously they are not prejudiced. Uh, well, one of the things I, I think the drafters of the rule wanted to ensure is that there would be a point at which the prevailing party in the district court could know with certainty that there wasn't going to be uh, further proceedings in the case, and that's the purpose of the 180-day per uh, period and all that. It's not open-ended. Uh, under your rule, where the actual time for filing uh, could be at some indefinite point, they'd never really quite have that assurance, would they? Well, unless the court specifically granted to the litigant a specific period of time and uh, you know, n normally litigants and lawyers do not ig ignore what the court says. I think, as you know, anyone, if the court says that, you have a right to reasonably rely on what the court said. And it certainly wasn't an unreasonable period of time that the court was giving in the case. It wasn't. Well, what would be an unreasonable period of time if the two or three days is not? Would another 10 days? Well, if you go back to the rule, if you're going into the six months, 180 days, then you, you know, you would uh, say something. Or if the court you know, it gave you a year or something by mistake. You know, it would, you know, that, that something does not sound right here. And then you would, you know, look at it and uh, at least if that were the case, you could probably go in and get the court to reconsider, bring it to the attention of the court that, uh, Your Honor, we do not have all of this time. Did you make a mistake? And you can always correct mistakes. Uh, but that was not done here. The, you know, the, it's not done by uh, the <coughs> respondent in this case because they didn't. The respondent did not object to the application to reopen the appeal. Did not say but anything. The respondent said it had no reason at that time to believe that you wouldn't follow the rule and file within the 14 days. So if they made an objection the moment the judge put down a date that 17 days later, the judge might say. That's premature. Well, then the judge may have said, well, I don't I look at the rule. I don't have it. I'm going to uh, uh, redraft the order, vacate my order, and put a proper order on in connection with the case. It would seem to me that at some point in the appellate process, because when you look at the history that the Sixth Circuit in this case, at least when the court then granted a certificate of appealability, you would think the respondents said, what, why are you granting a certificate of appealability when you've told us we have no jurisdiction over this case? Or at least from the two orders anyway, they said they had jurisdiction over the, uh, the February 10th order uh, that they, uh, on the appeal, and the, and the certificate of appealability was denied, and normally that would end the case. The court granted the my motion for reconsideration and then granted certain issues that could be briefed on the merits. But uh, once the court granted the certificate of appealability, it would seem to me that the other side, well, 
what is happening here. Mr. Mancino, I take it that what you're really proposing is sort of a, uh, a, a rule that if, if counsel could reasonably be misled to overlook the mistake by the court, uh, that your reliance upon the, the court's mistake uh, should, uh, should in fact be, be respected. It's kind of a rule of, 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 uh, of reasonably misleading. Uh, is, is that about right? I yeah. believe so. That, I mean, that's how we distinguish your case on your view from the case in which you get 180 days instead of 14. Right. It's sort, it's sort of, you know, reasonably reliance is a fair in in, you think we should have a, a, a rule of reason rather than a per se rule? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the prior case. <laughs> they need that. <laughs> May I ask this question? Is the order on page 151 of the Joint Appendix, just those three lines, that's the entire order that the judge entered? It just says granted in motion. That is it. It's handwritten on the original document. That's it. did it. not make the findings that the rule requires. No, but uh, presumably you would as- assume that those findings are subsumed within the rule because the the uh, judge found in our uh, in our favor. The judge denied the motion to vacate part of it, but granted the reopening vacate. And of course, on the, the motion to vacate, you had 30 days to appeal. The, the rule requires that he make three specific findings. We did not make. He did not make it, but uh, you. You assume that the judge did by granting the motion, and nobody else said anything about it anyway. Reserve the time. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Marshall? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The petitioner's failure to meet the 14-day statutory deadline for filing his notice of appeal is fatal to his case for three reasons. First, the 14-day period is mandatory and jurisdictional, and federal district courts do not have the power to enlarge this time period. Second, the 14-day rule was not forfeited by the state of Ohio and may be raised by the court sua sponte in any event. Third, even if there could be some sort of limited equitable exception to the 14-day time requirement, The petitioner here falls far short of demonstrating why he is entitled to such extraordinary relief. Let me explain why. The petitioner's claim that notice of appeal time requirements are not jurisdictional contradicts 150 years of practice, countless lower court decisions, settled congressional understanding as to the meaning of its governing What kind of jurisdiction are you speaking of? It's certainly not federal jurisdiction in the sense of subject matter jurisdiction. Like, is this a case arising under federal law? What kind of jurisdiction do you have in mind? Your Honor, I think it is, it is its own form of subject matter jurisdiction in the same way that final judgments on appeals are subject matter jurisdiction. And the reason why is that notice of appeals are classically jurisdictional in that sense, in that, in that they transfer the locus of a case from one court to another. And the appellate in the appellate system, there is actually a changing of the jurisdiction, and the notice of appeal is that triggering mechanism. And in that sense, it is classically jurisdictional and different from the other kinds of time limits that this Court addressed in Contrican versus Everhart, because those took place within a particular court system, the district court system, where here there is a transfer of jurisdiction triggered by the notice of appeal from one court to the other. But isn't that just a word game? It's jurisdictional because it transfers jurisdiction from one court to another. Why should that be? Why does that make it jurisdictional? Well, I, I think you're on the same way that final judgments are. I mean, final judgments are a jurisdictional prerequisite to transfer it from one case to another. The second reason, Your Honor, by the way, is, congre- is the congressional reenactment of, of the uh, notice of appeal time deadlines which also indicates that Congress treats these Do you think that anything that's enacted by Congress is jurisdictional? No, Your Honor, but when there is a background, as there mm-hmm. is in this case of 150 years of practice, where, where Congress has, has enacted against that background, it is presumed to be jurisdictional. And I'd also uh, point out that with respect to this Court's jurisdiction, the Court has treated uh, petitions for certiorari as jurisdictional in civil cases because there is a statutory underpinning, but has not treated them as jurisdictional in criminal cases, in part because there is not a statutory Doesn't underpinning. the latter suggest that a rule that, that concerns 
the transfer of a case from one court to another is not necessarily jurisdictional? Your Honor, I think the latter recognizes the fact that, in, that, uh, that uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be. That is correct. However, however that Congress and, and, the, and this Court can treat such a thing because it is an because it is a uh, because it does transfer the case from one to another. I think that the crim- that in the certiorari case, uh, in, with respect to criminals, there might be an indication there that there may be some relaxation. But I would also suggest that with respect to certiorari practice, you've already, you're already in the appellate uh, mode, in, and you're not dividing the jurisdiction between trial courts and appellate courts. But, but, uh, but uh, the quick answer is yes, Your Honor. I don't think it has to be jurisdictional, but certainly it can be jurisdictional. And for 150 years, this Court and Congress has treated this particular division as jurisdictional. Well, it seems to me that's what we're back to, that it's long been treated as jurisdictional. But you just said that it's not sufficient that it's been enacted by Congress, and it's not sufficient that it transfers a case from one court to another. But so the, we're, we're back just to history, right? Well, Your Honor, it's more than just history, because I think Congress reenacting 2107 against this background uh, for 150 years that this issue has been treated as jurisdictional uh, puts, uh, puts Congress behind this as well. But, it's, but here it's also 150 years. Uh, it's not a matter the, uh, of... I the think provision of, was it 2107? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, where does that appear in the Judicial Code? Does it appear under the provisions concerning jurisdiction? No, Your Honor. 2107 does not itself mention jurisdiction. However, that is also true with 2101 in respect to this Court's certiorari jurisdiction in civil cases. The word jurisdiction is not mentioned specifically, but, but it, it is under, under the heading uh, procedure, court procedure, right? It's a uh, time for, for, appe- for appeal to courts. Of yes, the- but that's under a chapter that deals with procedure as opposed to jurisdiction. Yes, Your Honor. But the, this court in Barnhart suggested that in determining whether something is jurisdictional or not, one looks at the context of the particular location. Here, this rule 21, excuse me, here the statute 2107 has been enacted and reenacted against the background of this court consistently saying it's jurisdictional and treating this rule as jurisdictional in that since cases as, as far along as Edmondson. You know there's been a spate of cases that said that the word jurisdiction has been vastly overused. It's a word of many meanings. And you are telling me that the meaning of these statutes is subject matter jurisdiction, just like is there diversity, is there a federal question? Yes, Your Honor. In the same way that amount and controversies are also subject matter. But, but amount and controversy is in 1332. Congress put it right there together, says diversity of citizenship plus amount and controversy, all in 1332. Here, the, the limit appears in a statute that deals with procedure, not jurisdiction. Yes, Your Honor, but that statute has been enacted against I know we keep reemphasizing this, 150 years of practice, including the Edmondson case in 1869, where the court on its own motion raised the matter as being jurisdictional and, and because the time period had not been complied with, dismissed the appeal. The question essentially isn't whether we're going to call it jurisdictional or not. The question is the effect of the particular rule. Some of the lower courts call it, <clears throat> excuse me, invocation to jurisdiction or a prerequisite to jurisdiction. The question is what the treatment of this particular requirement is, and the treatment of this particular requirement consistently for over 150 years has been that it is mandatory, jurisdictional, non-forfeitable, and can be raised by, by the court sua sponte. Yeah, then what, what characteristics are you asserting follow from, the, from calling it jurisdictional in this case? Your Honor, the, uh, the — um, Number one, it can't be, it can't be uh, waived. Right. That's correct. And number two, it's non-forfeitable. Uh, the the court of appeals has to inquire on its own, right? Yes, your honor. It's non. It's Anything non- else? Yes, your honor. There's no equitable exception to it. No if it's there's no equitable exception to it as well if it's jurisdictional. So all of th- all of those three attach to the term jurisdictional. But I also think that they could equally attach to the notion that even if we don't want to call it jurisdictional. Uh, 
if we don't view it as fitting easily within this category of subject matter jurisdiction. Except at, at least as to the second, at least as to the second, I don't know any any uh, matter that, that a court has to inquire into sua sponte, which is not jurisdictional. That, 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 that's the one of the three characteristics that I think we have always attached the word jurisdictional to, I think. Well, Your Honor, in Day versus McDonough, when dealing with a habeas, uh, with a habeas statute of limitations, this Court approved the Court of Appeals raising that issue sua sponte, although they indicate, although, uh, although in that uh, case the it Court. It may, it may. Yes, it may. But, but not must. Yes, Your Honor. Not must. And, and, and with truly things that we've called jurisdictional, you must, right? Yes, Your Honor. However, if, if as the lower courts wanted to play with the language a little bit and call it necessary for the invocation of jurisdiction or a prerequisite you to jurisdiction. You could call it quasi-jurisdictional. You wouldn't, you wouldn't object to that, would you? No, Your Honor. As Shakespeare might say, the, it's not the name. Uh, we are interested in the effect, and the effect here has been traditionally enforced over 150 years of court practice. What do you how, think of How the far do you take it? Suppose this slip is not noticed in the Court of Appeals. And then there's a petition for cert. And some clever law clerk notices that the, uh, the notice of appeal was filed in 16 days instead of in 14 days. Would the court then have to dismiss for want of jurisdiction? Yes, Your Honor. I think that I think it applies in the same way that lack of diversity would apply, or lack of a federal question could apply, as in the Motley case. Even if it was in front of this court, if it was recognized in the front of this court at that time, it, it would uh, it, it must be dismissed. For well, let's take it a step further. Let's assume uh, it isn't recognized. Assume he gets his habeas relief, and three years later. Uh, some eager beaver is calling through the records and saying, this guy never should have been in court. Uh, do they rearrest him and, and put him in the prison? Well, Your Honor, collateral attacks for lack of subject matter jurisdiction are not normally sustained, if, if that's what the, if that's, if that's what, if I understand your question correctly. So that, for example, in a diversity case, if two years or three years after it proceeds to final judgment, somebody realized that both parties were from the same state, a collateral attack would normally not allow to, uh, to change that, to change that uh, result, and I would think that the same thing would happen here. If the case had proceeded to final judgment, if there was an error of this type, as with other types of errors in subject matter jurisdiction, there would not be an opening for collateral attack. What about you, something uh, here I hadn't run across called the unique circumstances doctrine? And uh, we, this court in Ospinek said this, where a party has performed an act which, if properly done, would postpone the deadline for filing his appeal. And indeed, that's what happened here. Uh, he postponed the deadline for filing his appeal and has received specific assurance by a judicial officer that this act has been properly done. And here he did receive specific assurance by a judicial officer that the act was properly done. In those circumstances, you can make a little exception in the interests of justice. Well, Your Honor, the, the unique circumstances doctrine doesn't apply here because there wasn't an act which, if requested, could have been properly done. The yes, yes, the act was that uh, he filed a motion to reopen, which motion to reopen postponed the time of appeal. And two things have to happen with that act. One is you have to get the district judge to agree. And second, you have to uh, file the paper. So that's the act which, if properly done, would, in fact, have led to the appeal. No, Your, Your Honor, I think I agree that, there were two parts to it, or two acts, if you want. But, Justice Breyer, in this case, I think that what would have had to happen is that the petitioner would have had to move for 17 days in order for the act to be properly done. He moved for 14 days. It I was thought that what it was talking about was if the order had said 14 days instead of 17, then the act would have been properly done. That is, the only reason that for the 16 days, according to Mr. Mancino, the only reason he took 16 days was the judge authorized that. If the judge hadn't authorized that, 
the rule would have been his guide and he would have filed in 14 days. Well, Your Honor, the, the judge, our argument is in part that the judgment had no power to authorize it. But if I understand your question, with respect to the unique circumstances doctrine, this doesn't fit in because in the unique circumstances doctrine, the litigant actually has to seek a particular type of relief and get granted that relief. The petitioner here did not seek leave to file his motion of appeal within 17 days. The petitioner here sought, which the only thing that he could do under the rules, is seek to reopen for 14 days. So he hasn't received, just quoting from Osternick, he hasn't received assurance that the act has been properly done. That's In other words, if he came back and said, you know, was my notice of appeal timely or something, and the judge at that point ruled, then it might come under that provision. But this is just uh, prospectively. He could have filed this timely even after the judge issued the order. In other words, he could have filed it on the 14th day. He didn't have to wait till the 17th day. That's correct, Your Honor. Why does that matter? I mean, also, Osternick, I happen to guess, involved a case that took place on Tuesday. In this case, it took place on Thursday. I mean, I grant you, the language literally, you could say, doesn't quite fit it. But so what? The purpose of this, Osternick, I take it, is to have a very narrow exception where a judge tells you basically what to do, and you follow what the judge said, and then, lo and behold, they hit you with this jurisdictional thing, and you didn't get it right. Now, that seems to be its purpose, and the language is very close, so why not follow your Honor, the, the purpose of the Unique Circumstances Doctrine is not to give a license to litigants to rely on district court errors. Yeah, that would be the very narrow circumstances doctrine, not the unique circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed the Court applied it twice, so it couldn't quite be the unique circumstances doctrine. <laughs> That's right, Your Honor. May I ask this question? Supposing there was a dispute as to whether the order had been entered on February 10 or February 12. It was his handwriting was illegible. Would, you, would that be a dispute that would remain open throughout the appellate process? Your Honor, the question is, is when the clerk of court would have entered for the entry of judgment, I yeah, believe. If, no, if he'd entered this order on February 12th, or 13th, I forget which day, it would, it would have, the appeal would have been timely. That's correct, Your Honor. And I'm just, and, and the order was defective because it didn't make findings required by the rule. I'm just wondering, supposing it was ambiguous as to the date it was actually entered, would the party then be entitled to rely on the date that February 27th set in the order? Or would he have a duty to investigate and find out exactly when the judge signed the order? I think the, the key question, Your Honor, I think is when, the, uh, is when the order is entered into the docket, which is a form which is done by the clerk of court. I think that is the triggering time. And my question is, days. what if that's somewhat ambiguous? There's a busy court that he handed to the clerk and the clerk didn't enter into the docket. You're not sure. There's a fact dispute about that. Your Honor, that's a different case. The beginning time period is a beginning case. If there was some ambiguity there. I'm just wondering what your view is. How should courts resolve that kind of dispute? Should that be a dispute that we re remain open throughout the appellate process? There's a factual dispute as to when the judge signed the order. Yes, Your Honor. Again, the factual dispute is when the — is when the, uh, he'd written here instead of 210, he'd written down 212. Then the prosecutor, three days later, realized he'd, he'd written down the wrong date. Would, the, would that have made the appeal un, untimely? Your Honor, I think the, the question at that point is, what is the time period entered into the formal docket? And what is the actual and that's entry of judgment? I'm saying. That's ambiguous. If, if for some reason the court records are jumbled for some reason or another, and nobody can determine when that entry of order is, that's a different case. Because but in that case, you then rely on the February 27th date in the order. Then it would permiss be permissible to rely on uh, uh, appeal to be filed by 227. It, in such a case, it would be okay. Again, Your Honor, the, the critical thing with the rule period is the time period from the, the entry of judgment. No, and I'm saying there's, it's hard to figure out when the order was actually written down in the, in the docket. I think that the question that would require, then, is for who is ever filing the notice of appeal to determine when the entry of the docket is. If that's ambiguous, I think it's ob obligatory on the litigant to err on the side of caution, Your Honor. R Not rely on the 227D. I would, I, would, uh, I, would, I, would, I would certainly suggest that a litigant argue on the, uh, err on the side of caution, if at all. What about the, the rule that Justice Breyer quoted from the uh, um, Austria case? There was uh, another statement of the rule which goes like this. 
the, 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 there is a sharply honed exception covering cases in which the trial judge has misled a party who could have and probably would have taken timely action had the trial judge conveyed correct rather than incorrect information. This case fits right into that description, doesn't it? No, Your Honor. The, the case that they're citing to is Thompson. And in Thompson, what occurred in that case is that the litigant in that case the moved The case for, that I'm reading from is a concurring opinion in Carlisle against the United States. It does cite Thompson. Tom, it, Thompson is the case. Thompson, and this Court has not relied on the unique circumstances doctrine in 40 years, but in Thompson what occurred was the petitioner requested a new trial untimely, but was told by the Court that they had timely requested the new trial. Because they, they were informed that they were entitled to a new trial, they did not do something else, which was file the notice of appeal. So the Court basically sent them down the wrong avenue. Here, there was no wrong avenue that the Court, that the litigant was being but sent down. But they would have filed that notice of appeal earlier if the judge had said, your motion for a new trial is untimely. Your, your, it means the same as in this case. The judge said, your motion is timely, so you're going to have the trigger so much later. Fine. If the judge had said, your motion is untimely, then you know you've got to get your notice of appeal in sooner rather than later. Similarly here, the judge said, well, you've got till 17 days later. If the judge had done right and said, what, the 14-day period, then surely Mr. Mancino would have filed within that period. But, Your Honor, there is nothing that the Court did which would prevent the litigant here from filing on time. The, there was nothing that would prevent the litigant here from filing within the 14, the 14-day period. And when the rule of the Court said that he prevented filing a notice of appeal. Except in Thompson, Your Honor, he was told that he had a, a, the right to proceed on a motion for new trial if he had, if he had, Your Honor, I see that my time is up. You can finish your answer. In Thompson, Your Honor, the difference is that, that the litigant was sent down a different road which was inconsistent with his filing a notice of appeal. Here there is nothing inconsistent about filing a notice within 14 days as opposed to 17 days. Thank you, Mr. Marshall. We'll hear from Mr. Stewart. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. For four basic reasons, the deadline for filing a notice of appeal in a civil case should be treated as jurisdictional and therefore as non-waivable. First, the time limit set forth in Section 2107 directly implicates the concerns that underlie the special treatment of jurisdictional issues. It's a fundamental precept of our legal system that Federal courts should take special care to avoid adjudicating cases where Congress has not authorized them to do so. Or, to put it another way, our legal system has presupposed that the unauthorized exercise of jurisdiction is an error different in kind from the misapplication of law in cases that a court is authorized to adjudicate. Mr. Stewart, do you think this is subject matter, question of subject matter jurisdiction? We would, characteri we would characterize it as a species of appellate jurisdiction. That is, this Court has often said that it's the fundamental duty of this Court to, when, when doubt is, when doubt is apparent, to inquire into its own jurisdiction and that of the Court from which the record comes. And that division presupposes that there are cases over which the lower court had subject matter jurisdiction over which this Court would not have appellate jurisdiction. For example, situations sometimes arise, particularly in cases that are adjudicated by three-judge district courts, in which there is a dispute as to whether a particular district court order is directly appealable to this Court or should go instead to the Court of Appeals. And if somebody comes to this Court and this Court determines that the appeal should have gone to the Court of Appeals instead, the error is characterized as one of appellate jurisdiction. This Court lacks jurisdiction to review the ruling, even though there's nothing to suggest that the case as a whole fell outside the 
subject matter jurisdiction of the district court. Mr. Stewart, that's one of those interesting examples. We lack jurisdiction of the case, but we have power to order it refiled before, to vacate the order and have it refiled, don't we? That is an anomaly. The Court has said on occasion that because it lacks appellate jurisdiction, it has no power to do anything with the case except to vacate the order. And I think that's a quirk that I'm not going to try to explain. But I think Mr. Marshall has uh, identified a second example, namely the final decision requirement of 28 U.S.C. 1291. That is, that's universal conceded to be a jurisdictional rule, even though it has nothing to do with whether the district court had subject matter jurisdiction over the case. It's simply whether this particular decision uh, over, uh, for which review is sought falls within the appellate jurisdiction of the Court of Appeals. And our Mr. point, Mr. Stewart, should we repudiate the unique circumstances, Doc? I, I don't think you need to repudiate. I think you should repudiate any conception that Federal courts have freewheeling authority to excuse noncompliance with statutory time limits for taking well, the the unique circumstances doctrine is one circumstance in which uh, courts say, yeah, you, well, you can excuse I, it. I think actually both Harris and Thompson are explicable on other grounds and may even be correct in, in more limited ways. For example, Harris and on, the, on the grounds for which they have been taken as authority, uh, is it your view that we should repudiate those grounds? Yes. With respect to civil cases for which the time for taking an appeal is specified by statute, it's our view that to the extent Harris and Thompson would otherwise support the proposition that district courts may excuse noncompliance with the time limits, those cases should be repudiated. Why criminal? Uh, in criminal cases, the time for taking an appeal is not specified by statute. It's imposed by Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 4B, but there's no statutory basis for it. There, there was, up until 1988, a provision of Title 18 of the U.S. Code, that Section 3772, that specifically authorized this Court to promulgate rules that would establish the time for filing a notice of appeal. But in, uh, the, the, of course, the, you'd have to confine it very narrowly. I take that doctrine. If there weren't a statute, you read it into the rule. So there is a statute, and you read the statute as saying, well, there could be some very narrow circumstances that Congress would have been willing to make an exception. For example, it's a couple of days, and the judge tells you do it or lets you do it. It's roughly the same thing, isn't it? Well, I, I think it makes a fundamental difference that there there is a statute in place. And certainly with respect to certiorari petitions coming from the Court of Appeals to this court, this court has recognized that distinction to be fundamental. You're, is, you're sure habeas cases are classified for this purpose as civil rather than criminal? Yes, there's no no, no dispute about that. And indeed, if the if this case were classified as civil for purposes of the, I mean, as criminal for purposes of the time limit for taking an appeal, it would have been far out of time under Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 4B. Indeed, the, the authority of the district court to have granted the, the reopening period 180 days later wouldn't have been present in, in the criminal it, context. Look, looking at the, the rule, it does require these findings. Has, has that been interpreted to require that they be written on the record, or is that simply something that's supposed to guide the district court? I think the courts of appeals have not required that they be written on the record, but have required that there be a basis appearing in the record for those findings. So, for instance, if petitioner's counsel had filed a document asking to reopen the time, but had not represented that he had not been informed of the judgment, then I think that if the court had granted the reopening, that could be set aside on appeal on the ground that there was no support in the record for such a finding. But I don't believe the courts of appeals have required that there be explicit findings as opposed to findings that are implicit in the grant of the reopening. The, the, the point I was going to make about the certiorari petitions is that this court's rule 13.1 imposes a 90-day limit for filing a cert petition in, in all cases. It's not divided between civil and criminal. But this Court has recognized that the 90-day limit has a very different status in criminal cases than in civil cases. That is, Rule 13.2 of the rules of this Court states that when a cert petition is jurisdictionally out of time, the clerk is directed not to file it. And Rule 13.2 cites 8 U.S.C. 2101C. So the clear implication is that the Court recognizes the time limit imposed by statute in civil cases to be a jurisdictional limit. And, and the, the crucial point of Rule 13.2 is not simply that it uses the word jurisdictionally. It, it's that it gives an instruction to the clerk not to file the petition regardless of whether any other party objects. It, it's the 
very type of thing that a court will do as to matters of its jurisdiction, as, a ma- as to matters over which it has an obligation to take cognizance regardless of the other party's <coughs> objection. In criminal cases, by contrast, the 90-day rule applies under the rules, but the Court has recognized that it retains the authority to grant petitions that are untimely filed, e- even in cases where the other party objects. Uh, the, the other thing I would say about 2107A, and it's re- part of it is reprinted at page 16 of the government's brief, uh, in the, the last full paragraph of page uh, 16, it says, the basic time limit for appeals in civil cases is set by 28 U.S.C. 2107A, which states that, and then the part we haven't reproduced says, except as otherwise provided in this section. And then it goes on to say, no appeal shall bring any judgment, order, or decree in an action, suit, or proceeding of a civil nature before a court of appeals for review unless notice of appeal is filed within 30 days. And, and the significance of this provision, this language, is it doesn't simply say a notice of appeal must be filed within 30 days. Language like that would conceivably leave open the question of what happens if the notice of appeal is untimely filed. This language actually says if a notice of appeal is not filed within 30 days, uh, the appeal will not bring the judgment. Yes, Mr. Stewart, but it's, it, it begins with the exception as provided in subparagraph C. That's correct. So we're not saying that the 30-day limit is absolute. Yeah. But we're saying the rule specifies that if the various time restrictions are not complied with, the appeal will not bring uh, the — I'm sorry, the — the appeal shall not bring the judgment, order, or decree before the Court of Appeals. This is specifically framed as a limitation on the authority of the reviewing court. What do you think if we, if we did go to Thompson uh, and looked at that? This would be a fortiori from Thompson, because Thompson, as described in Osterneck, was a case in which the judge simply said from the bench, look, your, your uh, uh, new trial motion is timely, though it wasn't. It was out of time by two days. Uh, while here we have a formal court order, it's a formal order entered with a, you know, stamp of the judge, and it says you have till the 27th to file. Well, there, there are two things we would say about Thompson. The first is, as this Court explained in its recent decision in Hibbs versus Wynn, it, it's long been recognized that a timely motion for reconsideration will suspend the finality of the judgment and toll the time for taking an appeal. And the Court in Hibbs versus Wynn further explained that under certain circumstances, even an untimely motion for reconsideration will have that effect if the judge appropriately considers it on the merits. And Thompson can be explained as holding simply that where the government does not object and the district court uh, evinces an intent to treat the motion as timely and consider it on the merits, it will suspend the finality of the judgment. I don't think Thompson has to, read, has to be read to stand for a broader equitable principle. The other thing I'd say about Thompson is that, for better or for worse, the government's brief in opposition in Thompson, and the case was decided on the cert papers, didn't cite 28 U.S.C. 2107. It relied exclusively on the time limit that was stated in the Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure, and therefore the court in Thompson was not required to grapple with congressionally imposed limits. Thank you, Mr. Stewart. Mr. Mancino, you have four minutes remaining. If this were a case where someone just missed the 30-day deadline, I don't think we'd be talking. We're talking about a case where a judge properly found, properly ruled that notice was not given and had the authority to reopen the case. And we're going to talk about mandatory and jurisdictional of the case. All we're involved in this case is how is the case moved from one court to another? And did the, uh, was it moved properly in this case? The unique circumstances, I think, you cannot find a more compelling case for unique circumstances. Did the party rely upon the court? Here you have a handwritten uh, notation from the court signed by the judge. Mr. Mancino, does the record tell us how you got notice of that order? No, it doesn't. But, I mean, I, I did get notice of it. It came in the mail, but it doesn't, uh, it was. You, you got that order in the mail? In the mail, correct. And that's why I believe the three days was added, thinking of the mail rule, that you have three additional days to do it in connection with the case. And that's what I believe the, how the 17 days uh, came up. And, and I asked this once before. Did the uh, document you received show the date that it was entered on the docket so you knew when the 14 days was running from? No. The only information it had was the printed or the printed uh, date by the judge. 
the nacho was entered that same day. Yeah, but in, the, in, the, in this thing, it says entered on February 10th. Yeah, that's correct. The docket does show that, but, of course, we don't. How did you find out it had been entered on February 10th? Because you did know that at the time you filed your notice of appeal. Well, it just went off what the date on the, uh, the handwritten date on the, uh, the pleading we received from the uh, court. It said February 10th, so we just put it in there. It didn't go to the actual docket to see if, in fact, it was entered. As you can see, orders were not, in this case, were not entered on the date that the judge signified anyway. Uh, this, is, this is all at the top of page 151 of the Joint Appendix, right? That's the entire thing. That is the, well, it's uh, printed on that, but, I mean, if you look at the yes, original document. Yes, but it was, it, it was handwritten. It's a handwritten, uh, handwritten by the uh, judge in, uh, in the uh, case, so. Yeah, but it says when it was signed by the judge. It doesn't say when it was entered on the docket, when it was entered by the clerk. No, it says when the judge signed it. That's correct. But, but it, it says it in the index. It says it says docket entries in 210. It says entered 210 on page 11. On page yeah, 11. Yeah, that's correct. That that's, but that's from the docket. But the, but the document you receive from the, uh, from the court is, just has, you know, the handwritten notation on it, file your appeal by. What would, you, what would you have had to do to find out when it was entered on the docket? Could you have accessed that electronically, or would you have to go to the court? Well, probably I could not at that time. I may could do it now, but at that time, we'd have to go over to the uh, courthouse, just like we walked the notice of appeal over to the courthouse, had it stamped by the uh, clerk there, and figure that was the end of it. We're on our way to the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Mancino. The case is submitted.